always thought I looked at things differently, that I was passionate about certain things, that I was able to pick up things quickly. My secret power is that I read people, I understand people, and people make the world go round. So if you're not connected and you don't have genuine empathy for folks, genuine love for people, then I think you'll never truly be successful. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. In case you haven't figured it out by now, I'm a transportation and mobility junkie. I love cars, I love motorcycles. I'm a certified private pilot and I fly every chance I get. There was even a time when I drove race cars. If it moves, I'm fascinated. So it's probably no surprise that I'm also interested in anything that has to do with the future of how we get around. But it doesn't have to be the vehicle itself. I'm a geek when it comes to any gadget, bell or whistle designed to enhance any aspect of the mobility experience. Even the boring aspects like license plates. So it's no coincidence that my guest today is Neville Boston, founder of Reviver, a startup that has developed the first connected digital license plate. It's called the R-Plate, and its purpose is simple, to modernize the century-old metal license plate into a fully interactive digital screen that fits right on the back of your car. Imagine a world where you never have to visit the DMV again to register your plates. Imagine never stopping to pay a toll again. Imagine being able to personalize your plate differently every day. Or imagine having your license plate track how much you drive and adjust your car insurance accordingly. Neville says Reviver has only unlocked a fraction of the R-plate's capabilities and people are already starting to notice. The company is installing plates on cars at dealerships in California and is preparing to launch in several other states. Fleet managers and rental car companies have already begun showing interest and pretty soon, drivers around the world will start seeing these state-of-the-art plates on the highways. Neville has taken a long and winding road to becoming a tech disruptor. As you'll see, being an entrepreneur always came easy to him. But Neville's story is about what happens when you step outside of your comfort zone in order to change the world. Neville is a native of Brooklyn, New York, but his parents immigrated to the U.S. from Guyana in South America. 
The only of his siblings born in America, Neville has continued the family entrepreneurial tradition. His earliest memories are of his father, his grandfather, aunts, and uncles owning and operating their own businesses. It was something that took hold of him at a very young age. My paternal grandfather had a farm and a store. My aunts and uncles, every single one of them have a business of some kind. My mother had a fruit stand and then expanded from there. So it's something that's been inbred in me from before I was born. It was something that was part of who I am. The feeling, the need to strike out on my own, create my own thing and figure out a way to make that happen. And success wasn't tied to working for somebody else. It was tied to creating something of need and of interest and building on that. So what was your earliest memory of realizing that, wow, I'm surrounded by all these entrepreneurs? Well, my dad was extremely entrepreneurial. He always had an idea, a big idea of something that he wanted to create. All my uncles, when they came to this country, they started businesses of their own. I have an uncle that has a shipping company and then bought into real estate. I have another uncle that uh, owns his own law firm, practices law. He pretty much stays in the Caribbean, bounces between the different islands. I had an aunt that was a engineer and her husband was a mechanical engineer. And they went into making silk plants in Houston. So everybody had their own thing that they were doing. And it was just part of what you did. You never were satisfied with status quo. You always wanted to create your own thing. That's kind of like your own family accelerator. Kind of. (laughs) I mean, you know what's funny about you saying that? They actually, some of the first investment I got was from my family. When I went out to them, I had my two uncles, the one with the shipping company and the one that owned the law firm. They were some of the first investors in the company. You know, I was like, hey, this is what I'm doing. And they were willing to support that. So I want to talk a little bit about your parents. So they came to America when? So my dad came first, and I want to say that he came in 69. And then my mom came in 70. And I was born in 71. So he came first. My mom came behind him. And I was born in Brooklyn in 71. Is your parents' heritage prominent in Brooklyn and there's an actual community of... Yeah, there's a huge community of Guyanese folks that live there. Guyanese and Caribbean folks because, you know, where Guyana is, it's right, you know, next to Barbados. So it's it's right there. And Trinidad's close by. So there's an island feel that's there, even though it's part of South America. And the funny thing about Guyana is over 50% of the people that live there are Indian from India. So you have roti and curry and all kinds of other Indian-type foods that are part of our culture as well. What was your favorite homemade traditional meal? Oh, geez, roti and curry. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good stuff, I know, yeah. Are you instilling that same tradition with your children? You know something I am? I make time to do more cooking on the weekends. During the week, it's tough because work is busy. But on the weekends, yeah, we'll barbecue or I'll make different dishes and whatnot and, you know, try to keep them involved and connected in the kitchen. Awesome. So growing up as a child, you're surrounded by all this love, all this great food. What were you like in school? What were your passions and subject matter? Elementary, go from K through 12 before college. 
Well, I always had a quest for knowledge. I loved history. I would say history was my favorite subject, and it was the easiest one because it already happened. <laughs> so for me, it was just rote memory. Like you just remembered everything. But I was always intrigued because if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. So it's like I wanted to always make sure that I learned from you know mistakes or opportunities from the past so I wouldn't be making the same kinds of mistakes. So I was always focused on like, hey, these are things I could do better. These are things that I should be thinking about. That was interesting. I was interested in biology too, because I was thinking initially that I wanted to be a doctor. That might've been because my parents were telling me that that's what they wanted me to be. <laughs> so, I mean, and education was really, really high in the household. You know, both of my parents went to college and had degrees and most of my aunts and uncles had, you know, degrees. Well, I would say everybody had a degree of some sort, at least a BA, master's, PhD, you name it, it ran the gambit. So education was always important. But for me, I loved history. I loved the sciences. I liked math as well. I was just intrigued with knowledge in general. So when I went to college, my focus changed from, you know, thinking I wanted to be medicine into law. I thought I was going to be an attorney. So I, you know, was poli-sci major at Cal with a minor in business. And that was my focus is, you know, I was going to be this attorney that did business law. How old were you when you moved from Brooklyn to California? Okay, so there was another move in between. So I moved from Brooklyn to Massachusetts. And then I was 10 when we moved from Massachusetts to California. And how did you determine that you were going to go to UC Berkeley, also known as Cal? I was not going to the East Coast because I don't like snow. I don't like to be cold. I like to choose my weather. So, you know, if I want to choose snow for a weekend, I can do that, but then I can move away from that. So, you know, the East Coast, which is a wonderful place, I just, the weather, I just love California. So I was like, wherever I'm going to go to school, it's going to be here. So you went through the process. You know, the thing was back in the day when I was going to school, how you knew that you got accepted was it was a big envelope. So if you got the big envelope, then you knew. So how was the last one to respond? And I was like, that's where I'm going. So everybody else had responded and I was thinking about doing Davis. I had looked at some of the other schools and everything else, but Davis was really good. And I was waiting and right before I had made a decision, I got the envelope from Cal and then I was like, I'm going to be a bear. I'm a bear. But it was so funny because I do remember you get the legal envelope. It's like, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you get the big envelope, big packet. And it's like, Mom, Dad, look, look what I did. And yeah, I remember getting those envelopes. It was great. So now that you're in California, you're at Cal. What courses or mentors, you know, inspired you at that juncture? Boy, you know something? I had California politics. Professor Kane was like the class for me. It helped, you know, kind of encapsulize like everything about, because I love politics. I love all aspects of it. I think it's it's the thing that, everybody should know about and should care about because that's how things are driven. That's how decisions are made. Policies are put in place based on that. And knowing that gives you kind of a leg up on everybody else because that's something that you should, you should have your mind wrapped around. So California politics there was a great, great, great course. I also was befriended by one of my counselors who was, I want to say, one of the first black physicists 
or the first black physicist at Cal. He was fantastic to me. He was great as a counselor. He helped to guide, you know, kind of my decision making. When I thought I was going to law school, I was, I was planning on going to law school at Davis and he was helping me with all of those pieces. And like everything else, you think you know where you're going and then opportunities pop out of the blue and you make other decisions. But for me with Cal, it was being on campus. It was being around really, really, really brilliant people and professors and the ability for them to bring out the best in you. Because when I was there, I was working on Willie Brown's, I think, second mayoral race in San Francisco. And I had a friend that worked for John Burton, and I was able to get involved in real-time politics. You know, met Barbara Lee and her husband at the time, who was a pastor. And just like, you got to see things in a way that other people just dream about, and that was like part of your reality. So it was awesome. I mean, it was an experience of a lifetime. Uh, the relationships that I've made and kept have been some of the most dear that I've had in life. Oh, Willie Brown is such a classy man. I've had opportunity to, to chat with him a number of times. What did you learn from him that was so insightful? Well, I mean, when you think about, you know, Willie Brown is like, I was always just blown away by his ability to understand what to do and what not to do. I was always blown away with his encyclopedic knowledge and his business savvy. And I would say that um, a good friend of mine knew him a lot better than I, you know, Johnny Carter. And Willie Brown was actually one of our initial advisors with Reviver. When we had our initial kickoff that we set up a meeting at Foreign Cinema, Joe Kennedy, who was the CEO of Pandora at the time, and Willie Brown were the two people that actually spoke at the event, which now that I think about it, it's like, oh my God, I don't even know how that ended up happening, but it was, you know, so I would say Willie Brown, I've always been impressed with his ability to see things before things happen. He has a unique way of seeing around corners and understanding human nature and knowing what people are looking for. So, I mean, that's been always something that has been impressive about who he is and how he operates in the world. I'm curious, how did you end up in marketing? So I had a really good friend of mine, Sophia Umoja Noble, and she's now a professor at UCLA. But before then, she worked at Carol H. Williams, and she was in experiential marketing. And just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. I mean, just encyclopedic knowledge, just about everything. And I've never seen anybody be able to write a deck on a plane and present in the way that she did. So she was like, just amazing. And we got reconnected in Oakland and we got reconnected in a crosswalk. And that was actually the name of our first company, which was Crosswalk Productions. And we did experiential marketing and our first client was Crown Royale. So we worked with Diageo, which was the largest liquor manufacturer in the world. And we developed, you know, experiential campaigns around their business. So the first one was the Crown Royal Barbershop. We did a Bailey's Beauty Shop. We did Tangeray Teaks, which was a men's grooming clothing line. And then we did Ciroc on the Rock before Diddy took over Ciroc. So we were doing Conscious Diamonds, kind of, you know, kind of a trunk show. 
So we did all of this stuff and created all this amazing work. And it's just like, it was so much fun. We got a chance to travel kind of all over the world, setting up, you know, these experiential marketing campaigns for these companies and get a chance to just meet incredible people. And that all came from this opportunity to actually get this business kicked off with my business partner, Sophia, at the time. I went to my uh, godfather in the city and talked to him about whether or not he would invest in the company that we were looking at. And he looked at the business plan and was like, listen, I totally would, but you don't need my money. And he was like, based on what you have here, you'll be fine. And he was right. <laughs> he was right. So that was the first business. And then from there, we invested in another company called Kinetics, which was another marketing company. And it did more general marketing and Latin uh, marketing. And our clients were Moet Hennessy and Pepsi and the island of Bermuda and folks like that and Microsoft. So we had all these different you know, businesses that we were creating events for. And that was around the Oscars, the Grammys, BT Music Award, Super Bowl, NBA All-Stars, you name it. We would develop all of these items and ideas and bring them to life. So you had two agencies. Were you running them simultaneously or did one follow the other? One followed the other. You know, I was partners with Sophia and the other company. The guys that we invested in, it was like a group like a four and we ran that and it was it back to back and the specialty was really lifestyle and beverage you had a lot of beverage companies or are there other types of products well yeah it was lifestyle it was lifestyle because if you're looking at you know and you're creating affinity with a brand it's tied to how you feel when you're engaging with that brand i always thought the commercials and the messaging that hennessy did was second to none. They had one with Marvin Gaye that was just iconic. And it's like, there are pieces that you see that you realize that the brand knows you. And that has to do with how good the agency is. Because the agency basically developed a connection that in a lot of cases probably shouldn't have been there, but it was so spot on. You realize that the knowledge and the information that they had transcended what you thought and hit you at your core. That's what we looked to do when we created, you know, these events. The barbershop was one of those events. You go into a barbershop and you get new chairs, you get new clippers, you would get, a, you know, a TV for your station. And if you know anything about the black community, everything goes on in the barbershop. You get your news from the barbershop. You hear about all gossip in the barbershop. You hear about everything and you have these wide ranging conversations because you're in there for a long time and people are buzzing here, talking, you know, chopping it up. And it's a rotating cadre of people that are coming in. And with women, it's the beauty shop, you know, so within the community, it's usually the church, barbershop, beauty shop. And that's, that's kind of, you know, how people get connected. So being able to hit those notes when it came to speaking to folks about brands and what brands mean, I think helped to open my mind and my eyes to how you connect, how you should connect, you know, what things are important and how to put it together in a way that's authentic. The financial collapse of 2008 would end up hitting Neville and Sophia hard. Their clients began laying off employees by the thousands, and soon the work dried up. 
For Neville, it was back to the drawing board. He knew he wanted to start another business, but this time he was looking for something very specific. He needed to find an industry that was immune to recession because he didn't want to go through another downturn. So marketing was out of the question. We were looking at assets the state owned that were being underutilized. And I wanted to be in a business that wasn't tied to what was going on with the economy. It was something that had to be done. And license plates kept popping up because every year you have to register, you have to, you know, renew your, your you know, your tags. So if you could actually modernize the process so you don't have to go into a DMV and you can do it virtually and you can update the plate. And me and my marketing background was like, hey, what if we were able to do some targeted marketing when the plate, you know, when the, you know, vehicles stop? You know, that was, you know, the thought process initially. So what we did is that Johnny helped to figure out, like, who we need to talk to at the DMV. It was a gentleman named Dennis Clear, who was the legislative director for the state of California, for the DMV. And we got a meeting with him in December of 2008. And what I thought was going to be a five-minute meeting ended up being an hour and a half. He completely got the idea that DMV wanted to go more online. So I was like, timing is great. He was like, but you need to talk to my counterpart at the CHP. And so we set up a meeting with Avery Brown, who is his counterpart at the CHP. And it was, it was absolutely fantastic. And what we got from the meeting was this. You go into a room, 10 CHP officers, and you're talking about an idea, but you haven't built anything. And you're asking for their opinion. And what I got from that was government is willing to work with you if you're willing to work with them. If you have an idea and you actually ask for feedback and engagement, they will engage with you. And that's what happened. We were open, an open book. We started having conversations. They engaged. We continued to engage. And we were able to build something from that. So California, of course, like it's California, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world, it took three and a half years <laughs> to get legislation done. And then from there, it took another two years to get a pilot going with the state. But by 2016, we had plates on the road testing. So we were moving down that path. You know, flip side of that, though, in Arizona, I had a meeting set up with the director of the Department of Transportation. And then the DMV director and, and their and their team. Thirty minutes, thirty minutes into my presentation, he told me to stop. And he looked around at his team and said, "I want to do this." And he started to direct people on what they needed to do. And within a year, we were in a pilot. <laughs> so every state works differently. He had the ability to do it. California takes three and a half years. That took thirty minutes. <laughs> I think what I really latched into what you're talking about is this whole user experience and that authenticity that you saw in those moments. And with these brands, then you're bringing into this other market, which is now the digital license plate era that you're creating. And so do you think that those experiences gave you the foresight to say, you know what, we need, you know, this is a, a dusty old metal plate, it doesn't do anything. And did that user experience and this series of events allow you to push it out even further and visualize it? Absolutely. 
I've always been a person that has wanted to push the envelope. I never saw myself as status quo, ever. I had to remember as a kid, people would say the average person does this. It was like, well, they're not speaking to me because I've never been average. And it was something that was just instilled in me from the beginning. Like how my, how I was built is I always thought I was exceptional. I always thought I looked at things differently, that I was passionate about certain things, that I was able to pick up things quickly. My secret power is that I understand people and people make the world go round. So if you're not connected and you don't have genuine empathy for folks, genuine love for people, then I think you'll never truly be successful. Because if you cannot bring people with you and help them see a vision that you have, you're not really a leader. It's not about yelling or screaming or any of that stuff. It's about a connection. It's about me talking to you and you getting exactly what I'm saying. So that probably had to be your approach to fundraising too. It's a funny thing because before this business, I never raised money. Never. I mean, never had to raise money like I've had to raise for this company. And I've, I've raised over $60 million. And it's like, those numbers seem foreign, but no, it was necessary in order to be, to be able to move the needle forward. One of the folks that we partnered with that's been hugely helpful in this process is Mineta Ventures. Mineta Ventures is the largest VC in the Sacramento region, and it's managing partners, Lokesh uh, Sicaria, and he's also a Berkeley grad, but brilliant. has been so key in helping us as we're kind of expanding and, and moving forward. Mineta has just been great as a partner. And Lokesh as kind of a visionary, looking at things and, you know, helping us grow. And we're really excited to be working with them and to continue to see where that partnership takes us. But Manetta has been absolutely incredible. And Lokesh, you know, runs that group and he's been great. And it's just one of those things that you figure out how to bring money in. The companies raise this money because people believed in the vision. People believed in where it was going. Because the biggest thing was, when people thought about the business, it was like, there's no way that the DMV is going to allow you to put a digital plate on a car. There's no way that you're going to get legislation passed. There's no way. And all of a sudden, all of those things kept getting done. And it was like, then they stopped having, well, I guess you can actually do what you say you're going to do. And the answer is yes. You know, because... It's something that needed to be changed and fixed. It hadn't been changed in over 100 years. It was a technology that needed to be integrated. And we were forced and hampered and shackled to a metal plate when everything else on the car, including the tires and the windshield, are smart. It made no sense. So I have an always-on connected platform that you know you are able to update and when you start thinking about, you know, compliance, compliance should be able to be what's best, not what you're forced to use. And it's like, what's the best way of getting this information out? How should it really look? What's the best way of having an autonomous car? Somebody know that, a, you know, a vehicle is in autonomous mode. Like, can we standardize that messaging? Those are the kinds of things that you can do with a digital plate that you can't do with a metal plate. And this is part of the movement towards being able to galvanize and move us into 
a 21st, 22nd century mindset. Everything's possible. You know, if you think about, you know, the phones and the information that's, that's being utilized, think about growing up where you had a pager and then you, you know, you had a flip phone. Well, then you had the car phone and how, where the phone has come to. There's more technology now in phones than they were, I think, in the initial rockets that they sent to the moon. The more computing power. So when you start thinking about things like that, it's like, it makes sense that you would have, a, you know, a digital plate. And regardless of where you are, whether Bakersfield, California or Timbuktu, everybody uses that plate to identify the vehicle. So did the idea and the capabilities of the digital plate become bigger? So when you start with the original idea and you go back to that that first meeting with the deputy legislation, and then you go California CHP, and then you go to Arizona. Did the platform capabilities evolve? Did it have one point of functionality and then it evolved? Maybe you can kind of talk about how the evolution of its abilities. Absolutely. Yeah, the initial thing was, this has got to be a registration rule, and you shouldn't have to go out to your car and physically do something. It should be able to update. So the platform was, at, at a minimum, this should be able to do registration renewal. You know, stop. But then also, because of the platform, why not be able to utilize it for tolling? So we're in the process of actually, you know, working on that right now. A tolling solution so that you can toll with the plate. Parking. Why can't you do that? Amber alerts. Silver alerts. Inclement weather alerts. We can support all of that. You know, we're having conversations with OES. Office of Emergency Services to, you know, kind of get those things in place. But, you know, we're getting ready to launch in Dubai in Q4 of this year. And why they wanted it is that they wanted to know who was on their roads. So, I mean, for there, you could do like virtual impound. There is a million and one things you can do with this platform because it's always on and connected. So you have a way of pushing information and collecting information back. So the platform is going to continue to evolve. What we're looking at today won't be where it is tomorrow, you know, because, you know, we have firmware that can be updated. So as there's new features that come on board, like your cell phone, play downloads, get the new information, and you move on to the next thing. So it's how we live our lives today. I mean, I think about banking. And back in the days, go to the bank all the time. I never go to the bank now. I bank through my phone. I can take pictures of checks that automatically get deposited in my account. When you think about like buying stocks, I've got an E-Trade account. Like I, it's an app. <laughs> you know, it's like when you start looking at all the things that you do now from where you thought they were in the beginning, it's night and day. So during the process and going through all the, you know, to go state by state for adoption, how many states have adopted date? So we're legally selling right now in California and Arizona. We're authorized in Michigan, Illinois, Georgia, fully. Texas for commercial fleets, and we'll be working on full authorization. Florida for governmental vehicles, and we're sending plates out for Stuart Pilot, get full authorization next year. Working with Ohio, North Carolina have, you know, initial legislation done. We did a pilot in Maryland and in Pennsylvania, and we're working in Washington State. Colorado and in Hawaii. So it's really kind of just really exploded. And we're looking to start, you know, conversations in New York before the end of this year. Our big thing was 
focus on the top 10 vehicle markets in the U.S., and you get over 50% of the driving population by doing that. And the only one we're missing right now is New York. One of the biggest challenges Neville faced early on in Reviver's development was finding the right talent to convert his vision to reality. Neville wasn't an engineer. He wasn't going to build a platform. So he needed to learn fast how to identify and recruit engineering talent. His initial business partner was a mechanical engineer, which allowed Reviver to hit the ground running. They brought in a handful of engineers and designers from GoPro an action camera company that had achieved early success with its breakthrough technology. But at the time, they were struggling and the Reviver team jumped. And there was also the matter of learning how to make their license plates comply with regulations in several different states. So Neville also needed to create a legislative framework and build relationships with key stakeholders all over the country. These were all things that were new to Neville. So he made a point of surrounding himself with the best possible team he could his freedom up to do what he did best, sell Reviver's story. And then it's just about people believing your story and that you can deliver. And I think where that got crystallized for us is in 2017, the AMBA International Conferences. AMBA is the Automobile Administrators for the U.S. and Canada, kind of a trade organization that sets standards for DMVs, you know, Secretary of State's office. Department of Revenue, you know, and then law enforcement. And they had their international conference in San Francisco. And we took up three booth spaces and we had a vehicle in there and we had our plates on vehicles and we had this whole booth blown out with people and, you know, and it was, it was incredible. And we were right next to 3M and, you know, 3M does the, the sheeting for, you know, metal license plates. So retroreflective sheeting from metal license plates. And they only had one booth size and ours was three. And it was basically old technology, new technology. And it was kind of an amazing time because all the states then saw us as real. Because at that point, it was like, this is a real company. They've got a real product. And we actually got business from that. So it was huge. Do you think it, it would have been more challenging to start the company in a different state? I mean, California is very bureaucratically challenging, but do you think California was the right place to start? The yeah, business? you know, it's kind of the story. Like, what, what do people say? If you make it in New York, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I think the, the deal is with California, it is one-eighth of the driving population in the U.S. So if you could actually get it done here, you could get it done anywhere. And by you getting it done in California, it opens the door for every other state because no other state is as big as California. You think about it in Texas, you got 24 million vehicles. In California, you have over 30 million. You know, you've got probably 34, 35 million vehicles. It's, it's, it's insane how large it is, but it has more vehicles than the country of Canada. So if you're able to get it here, you can get it anywhere else in the country. So it was the hardest. But it was the right state to start with because it, it, it allowed us to get, you know, kind of our foot in the door. And then it, it kind of helps to expedite everything else. So let's talk about the types of vehicles. So we have fleets and fleets could be anything from delivery trucks. It could be Avis cars, the rental cars, right? So what are the, the advantages for fleets? So with fleets and also fleet management companies. So the big thing is, is that 
when you have a fleet, your vehicles are usually out and doing things like updating registration tags and all of that stuff can get lost. Compliance becomes a big, big, big issue. So if you're able to simplify compliance for fleets, you're doing them a huge favor because if those vehicles aren't able to be out on the road, they're losing revenue and potential revenue. So the turnaround on that is huge. And that's something that nobody else does the way that we can do it. And I think that gives us a huge advantage. Second thing is, we've spent a lot of time talking to fleet managers from large fleets to small fleets. And I think we have a really beautiful solution when it comes to fleet management. It is a beautiful, beautiful solution, well-done solution. So our, our, I think that we've listened, we've spoken to, we've heard what their concerns are, and we've built a solution that addresses them. And what about autonomous fleets, which is... Well, I mean, that's something that I think is going to definitely be coming. You know, we've worked with car sharing, life sharing, vehicles. Autonomous is something that we're looking to work on as well. We haven't yet, but it's something that we're definitely going to be, you know, working towards. We understand, like, what the plates can do and what the opportunities are for it to streamline, you know, a lot of these processes. And when it comes to electric vehicles, we have fleets, plates on the city of Sacramento's EV fleet, the entire fleet. And the reason for that is that it's simplified, you know, manner of being able to collect and get data that they need because they don't have an ODB2 connection. Our plate can operate as that for them. So it just opens up a lot of opportunities that weren't there before. So our sweet spot and fleets are uh, basically five to 50 vehicles, but we work well with larger fleet management companies to offer registration where you wouldn't have it, you know, before. So that's one of the things that we do that's unique. So these plates ultimately could cause some real disruption in the fleet management space. Yeah, I see. I see it working in the fleet management space being extremely disruptive there. We're just in, in nascent conversations, but I can see in the next year it being a big deal. We've been working with uh, some of the uh, largest fleet management companies in the world, and it looks like this could be a big thing for us and for them. So, yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, with that being said, once that's done, I think it will also be disruptive within the rental vehicle market as well. What we're doing now in dealerships. We're actually preloading plates on a dealership vehicles. And one of the ones that we did, and we got an amazing interview, is with BMW of Fairfield, the uh, Champ Group, and Justin Legrand, who's the GM there, gave one of the best interviews about why they're utilizing the product and the uptake based on it. And having a BMW, why would you want a you know, metal plate or a paper plate? It's just like it was brilliant. So I'll get you some information on that, but they've been incredible to work with. And I see it being really disruptive when it comes to dealerships. We just sent out a press release for Galpin Motors, which when it comes to innovation and technology and savviness, when it comes to social media, they're second to none. And we just put out a press release this week about being in their stores and preloading and all the rest of that. So. They're also the number one Ford dealer in the in the country. So yeah, it's it, it's exciting times. I see it being disruptive for fleets through FMC fleet management companies. I see it being disruptive when it comes to rental 
and then also at dealerships. So, I mean, streamlining that process tremendously. I'm excited. And then, you know, sometime in the future, you know, a relationship with Best Buy, because they do our installations now for the wired plates. They're our installation partner, you know, and maybe there's a retail application in the next year or so. So lots of things to think about. So let's talk about privacy, because I know that's something that comes up quite a bit. So who owns the data and what is your privacy? Yeah, so you own your data. You think of us more like Apple than Facebook. We don't make money off selling your data. Our business, whether it be GDPR, when that came to be about safety and how you transfer information, you know, safely for a customer, we've adhered to all of that, you know, within our standards of how we keep it, your information. Your information is your information. If you have a digital plate and you have a GPS unit on it, you on your cell phone can either turn it on or turn it off. You control it. You control your information. You control your data. In California, it's CCPA, and we adhere to all of their precepts, you know, and standards because we're about people's privacy. And again, our business isn't like Facebook where people are getting things for free that aren't free. So, you know, that's how they charge for it. And I, you know, hey, that's a business model. Ours is different. We believe that we're bringing a different kind of value and you pay for it, but you own your information. And it's always my plate, right? Once I buy it, I don't want to trade it in. It is your plate forever. Yep, that is your plate. Think about it like this. When you buy the plate initially, it hasn't been provisioned. So it's just a digital display. It becomes a license plate once it's provisioned. But what the state owns is the number on the plate. You own the actual plate. And the DMV doesn't repurpose the no, information. We engage with the DMV to verify the license plate number and that it's valid, and that's it. So there's no more data than that. And that information is that information be the same for a metal plate. So there's nothing to repurpose. So now let's talk about the challenges of 2020 a minute. If everyone had a reviver plate in America in 2020, how different might the world have well, been? Well, yeah, you know, the ability that to adequately social distance, the ability not to have to worry about your registration updating, you know, you have a simplified way of doing it remotely. You know, you're not having to go into an area where other people are. You're not having to go out and actually touch your plate. It updates automatically. You're able to utilize it for tolling and parking. Touchless. You don't have to interact with anything. It will digitally connect. You know, you think about a world where COVID has made everybody very conscious about everything they do and their proximity. And this helps to simplify things that were very manual and very paperwork heavy. When I think about it, it's just like you're able to then communicate with folks more effectively and people will know kind of what's going on. Think about it, you know, having a a smartphone, a smartwatch. And, you know, you may be having a heart attack or something, have your watch connected to your plate where you could actually let people know that you're having an episode. When you start thinking about the opportunities for the plate to communicate with other people, let folks know kind of how you're doing, you could see the real need and utilization that could come from a technology like this, kind of a day in the life. And then also when you're home, it connects to let you know that you're home. Your kids, 
you know, like Life360, you have the ability to connect and as a group to let each other know what's happening, you know, real time. As a parent, having a child that is, you know, learning to drive, having one of these plates on there, you can let people know, hey, this is a beginning driver, you know, give them space, you know, and then as a parent, like you could geofence, you know, where you want your kids to go. And if they're, if, if they go outside of the geofence, you know, and then you let them know like, hey, I'm giving you the car to drive. You need to drive this car. If you're not driving it and you're going someplace else, I'll know that as well because I know the car's not moving. There's smart ways that you can engage to be able to not be onerous, but be responsible. Because what I look at it as is that we have a contract as a parent and a child. We have a contract. And my contract is that I need you to you know, be safe. And your opportunity is like, I want to go out and I want to have my own time. But we need to have trust. And a way that I can trust is that if you tell me you're doing something that I know, that if I look, you're actually doing what you say you're going to do. So is there one message, because I have a message in my mind, if there was one message that I would want people in 2020 with my R plate to see, besides my license plate number, which always has to be there, I think for me, it would be like, be conscious. What would yours be? Embrace change. Mine would be embrace change. I mean, because at the end of the day, we get caught doing what's safe. Be okay with change, you know, because that's what makes the world better, is our ability to grow and be better. So embrace change. That would be the message. If COVID taught you anything, is that change is inevitable and uncomfortable. But, you know, sometimes you need to go through that and we'll become better on the other side. And I think we've all learned a lot. I hope, I hope we've all taken the lessons from this as, as kind of a, you know, positive to be better people and to be more conscious of others and to spend your time more wisely. I think that's an, another thing is that you get caught up wanting to just do what's comfortable for you. Get out of your comfort zone. Do something different. Bring some joy to somebody else's life. Understand the importance of what you're creating. So if you go all the way back to where we started the conversation growing up in this very entrepreneurship family, did you ever, ever imagine that you would be bringing the license plate into the 21st century as being your calling? You know something, I didn't know it was going to be that, but I knew it would be something. I have always felt my life had purpose and that I was going to do something, you know, amazing. I wanted to do something that wasn't for me, that was for somebody, you know, else that, that had a bigger purpose. So doing this and having this business, to me, has value because it helps to solve something that's been a pain point for a long time. And as we continue to grow and evolve, what I'm thinking about now, you know, in a couple of years, there'll be a million other things that that are born from this that I never thought or, you know, even imagined. Because you think about it, think about the iPhone and the iPhone platform. Think about all the other businesses that are tied to that. All the other ways that people have been able to generate income and value from that platform. That's how I look at, you know, Revival's platform. It's just the beginning. We're in a nascent state of really having features that, you know, are compelling that people really want to utilize. And I think it's just going to grow and grow and grow as we open it up and, and make it more, you know, open source where people can actually build on top of it. Because I think there's value to that. So Neville, 
How did you feel the first time you saw one of your plates on the road? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a feeling like seeing the plate on the road and knowing it's legal to be there is literally like a dream come true because to have it as a thought and then go through the process to make it legal so you can actually be something that could be on the road. And then having brilliant engineers come in and develop a reference design and then take that reference design and then put that and put all of the inner workings together so that it actually operated and then have that on a vehicle, absolutely mind-blowing. Because from thought to conception to activation, it is incredible. And, And it just warms my heart. And I smile from ear to ear thinking like, this is something that was a thought that's actually real. And then when you see them in the wild, because you see them in the wild, you know, on a vehicle that you don't know the person who owns it, but you see it around, is always incredible. You know, I look out, I was like, oh, there's an art plate. You know, or just like, it's, it's, it's over there. It's, it's there. We've got, you know, over 11,000 on the road right now. And by the end of the year, we're looking to have, she's 60, 70,000. And early next year, over 100,000. It's like, it's there. It's there. That was Neville Boston. While the R-Place biggest wins have been in the fleet management and rental car spaces, they are also starting to see some momentum with private vehicle owners. The company has received a giant boost from a group of celebrity car enthusiasts who have gotten R-Plates on their cars. Names like Cedric the Entertainer, Snoop Dogg, Big Percy, and Exhibit. Jay Leno, another well-known car collector, has even featured the plates on his hit CNBC show, Jay Leno's Garage. Neville says that the next frontier for the R-Plate is to expand overseas, with the first rollout coming later this year in Dubai. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>